situation in Colombia. At least two different young people spoke to me of hearing on the television or the radio yesterday network the account of Chet Bitterman's mother saying that her son had died because he served Jesus Christ, but there were millions of Indians in Colombia who still need the gospel. And that was the reason he had gone there. And so the praise was given to the Lord. Mary Helen Wilson, T.W. Wilson's wife and our own congregation's niece, served at the mission station of where this young man's body was taken. This letter came from the Wycliffe Bible translators on the 21st of January requesting prayer. It was early in the morning on January the 19th when entrance was gained into our Wycliffe group house in Bogota. Let me explain this. The Wycliffe Bible translators are sometimes called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. I have seen these remarkably brave people all over Africa, in Vietnam and Thailand, in places where I've gone around the world. They serve at pitiful salaries. They're backed by no huge budget, no big denomination. They go loving the people. They are not associated with the CIA. They love Jesus Christ. They seek to take languages which have not yet been reduced to writing and put them into writing so that not only the Bible but that the world of health and care can be introduced to people too. And they serve very, very unselfishly and very heroically and seldom noticed by the world until something like this happens. Anyway, their house was broken into, the missionary house in Bogota. And the people there took away Chet Bitterman, a 28-year-old with a wife and two little girls. They demanded that ransom be paid or that all of the Bible translators in Colombia leave. These people had covenanted long before that no matter what happened to any of them, they would not give in to terrorists, that their lives were expendable in the cause of Jesus Christ, and today we'll be studying about the church at Smyrna, which suffered for Jesus. We know so little of this suffering here in America. And so yesterday morning, after a deadline and deadline and deadline has passed. They found a bus and the man had been shot in the head and in the heart and was killed. This missionary letter says, we are reminded that the battle is not ours, that no man can shut the doors, that God is open. We celebrate the dedication of the printed New Testament by a Wycliffe team in Columbia just a few weeks ago. And at the same time, we gave thanks with the ninth team to complete their first draft. 
Chet and Brenda were to have begun work among another group this month. In the light of these victories, we can only expect the opposition and persecution that the Lord tells us we will have. We covet your prayers as never before. Pray for the miracle of Chet's return to us safe and well. Pray for the Lord's comfort and his hand over Brenda and the girls, Anna and Esther. Pray for Chet's family in the state. Praise God for the safety of the others who were in the house when the guerrillas came. Pray for those of our administration who are faced with difficult decisions to make in these hours. Continue to bring all of us here before the Lord that he might be glorified in whatever circumstances he may allow in our lives. There's no way that I can find any words that are adequate to express praise to God for brave people like this. This note that came to Bill and By Wood, dear Pastor and Mrs. Wood, as you can see from the printed letter, we're going through trying times. Since this letter was written, the group that took Chet communicated their demand to the newspapers that all Wycliffe members leave Columbia by February 19th. Our director and executive committee do not feel that the Lord is directing us to leave Columbia at this time, and we're looking to him for help. We need your prayers. Only the Lord knows what the future holds. And he does know the future. We'll see this in a few moments when we study about the church in Smyrna. But I want you to sing with all your heart a hymn that's appropriate for such a time as this. The 354th hymn, let's sing it to the glory of God. And let's sing it in loving honor to this one who sealed his testimony with his life for Jesus Christ. There is one announcement that I want to give some special attention to, and that is that officially on the part of the session and the committee that oversees our Christian education program, we want to welcome to our church staff Ms. Carlisle Hoyt. Uh, she will be working as a resource person. That's sort of a name that catches up a lot of different things because her duties will include assisting with the church school, the youth fellowship, and other Christian education and Bible-related projects. She will also be assisting with the church visitation program in the nursery. Carlisle brings a long time of experience both in Asheville Presbytery and as a Christian education director in many churches uh, to this important ministry, and we want to welcome Carlisle uh, as she takes this new responsibility. Now then, I want to remind you that we had started last Sunday to look into uh, a series of studies dealing with the seven churches that are enumerated in the first part of the book of Revelation. This important book has always been the source of comfort of God's people in time of trouble and persecution. We have said that it involves elements of that which is prophetic things which are yet to come, that there, in it, there is in it cryptic, mysterious things that are spoken. It had to be that way because these people were going through persecution. I believe, and I think I have good scholarship in back of me in believing so, that the author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John. 
the same one who walked with Jesus and who wrote the Gospel according to John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. There are scholars now who have pushed the date of this book back before 70 AD, which was at the time Jerusalem fell. William F. Albright was among them, a German by the name of Brower and J.T. Robinson, even in Cambridge University, has pushed the date of this uh, book back. Uh, and this would put it back uh, shortly around the time of Nero's persecution or shortly thereafter. Let me begin to read to you from the second chapter. I'll go back over our lesson from last week just briefly in the reading because our lesson about the church in Smyrna uh, contains only three or four short verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now remember, angelos means a messenger. You angelon is a bearer of good news. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien has a remarkable word called a eucatastrophe, something that is a good catastrophe. And sometimes that has to take place in our life to make way for something that's good. Even God can take this terrible thing which has happened in Colombia and turn it out for his own purposes and for his own glory. This happened in the history of the early church. Tertullian said, the more you mow us down, the more we will grow. And it's always been true that the seed, uh, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The very word martyr means witness. This is supposed to be witness season and it's also the time when uh, we, in many churches, uh, acknowledge the season of Lent. The Lent is the old English word for the lengthening of days or the coming of spring, or the 40 days before Easter, and which a lot of people uh, seriously enter into the study of the Word of God and of the events leading up to it. This is, a, by the way, these seven churches are very appropriate for that period of study. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, to the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, your toil, and perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men, that you put to the test those who call them themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, the word we, reg re we regain our first love is to remember. That's one reason the celebration of the Lord's Supper should be taken so seriously. We remember his body broken and his blood shed for us. We sing hymns such as we sung this morning. Uh, we remember how much Jesus loved us and how much his fellow uh, servants all over the world pay a price for that. And this creates within us a love for him too. The association with one another should sharpen us and make us better Christians. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Repent means we remember and we're to do something about it. We're to turn around and get a new direction. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I'll talk about later on, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, that means that the Christian faith is something that continues on all the days of our life. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, a metaphor showing the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now then, the lesson for today. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and is come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast you, some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Amen. May God bless to our hearts this reading from his word. Amen. If the first mark of a true and a living church is love, and the church in Ephesus, among, where Paul had labored for about three years, had lost that love, you know how much joy it is to be around someone who is in love. And it's a good thing to be around Christians who have that glow and that love for Jesus. And it's not something that fades out with the years. It's something that grows better and sweeter, as we have seen in recent months with the going into glory of our friend Gay Curry and Brown Hoyt and um, uh, Uncle Ed Curry. You see them grow sweeter, and you see their love for Jesus grow firmer. The first mark of a true and a living church is love. It's not so important what the people in Black Mountain think about the church in Montreat. It's not so much important what you may think about the church. It's what does Christ think about the church. And what does he think about you in the church and your love for him? What does he think about me and my faithfulness to him in the living and the preaching of his gospel and you in the living out of his gospel and the proclaiming of it by the deeds that you do? When one loves, one must be prepared to suffer. The mother who loved her son and gave him as a missionary suffered. The wife who loved her husband and was willing for him to serve in a dangerous place and to be taken captive and for ransom not to be made in the way in which robbers wanted it, paid a great price. I'll never forget, years ago, being in a place in Vietnam, which had been a very dangerous place, a little minibus, a little Volkswagen minibus had been stopped. And a young missionary named Simone, who was pregnant, about seven or eight months pregnant, and her husband, they were from Switzerland, and they were with the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, the type of organization this was. The Viet Cong had put up a roadblock. 
her husband got out to see what they wanted. They took a machine gun and shot him all to pieces right before her eyes, ran back in the woods. I was out there representing the president. There was a big dinner that night, or a few nights later. And uh, General Lewis W. Walt, who was the commandant of the Marine Corps, I told one of the chaplains about wanting to meet this lady. And the general had a dinner. And of course, because protocol requires generals to sit in one place and representatives and emissaries to sit in another, I noticed when we came in, he had his people go out and bring in these missionaries from way out in the boonies. And he put at his left side this sad-faced young woman. And I thought it was one of the most chivalrous things I ever saw, that here is a four-star general who puts a missionary of the cross by his side because he honors a sacrifice that has been made. Her love was great, and she paid a great price for it. Christ writes a letter to the church at Smyrna to the church in Montreal. And in this letter, he wants us to know, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. Remember earlier in the letter, he refers to Alpha and Omega. The one who died and came to life. I know your tribulation. That's a big word. Tribulation means being squeezed like a grape is squeezed until the blood of the grape runs out of it. Like a piece of wheat is crushed until it's like powder and flour. I know your tribulation, says Christ. And I know your poverty. And then a parenthetical expression. But you are rich. There, there is many a church, there are many churches with expensive stained glass windows and organs that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and eloquent preachers and dignified rituals who are rich, poor churches. And there's many a little fellowship in a storefront rescue mission or on a mountainside or in some obscure place that does not have all the accoutrements that a lot of people think are associated with the worship of God, but who have riches in faith. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, what would be some of the suffering? I know your tribulation. It was dangerous to be a Christian. And the reason that it was dangerous in this particular place was that it came at a time when the worship of the emperor was a big thing. The emperor was worshipped, the cult of the empire. Rome was to be deified. And Rome demanded of its citizens in their ancient documents that have been put forward to prove this, that they come and take a pinch of incense and place it on an altar where there was a bust of Caesar. And this gave them a certificate saying that they were politically loyal and reliable. All they had to do was say, Caesar is Lord, or I swear by the genius of Caesar, or by the fortune of Caesar. 
And so they were given a certificate and they could be let go free. But Christians would not compromise these faithful Christians. And so as a result of that, they suffered. They suffered. A little later I'll tell you of one of the most famous ones who suffered in Smyrna. They suffered in four ways. Poverty is mentioned. In the epistle to the Hebrews, which was also written to Christians who were suffering, in Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The plundering of your property. That they would come and tear down their shops where they worked. That they would make difficulty for them because they belonged to Jesus. And this is true in places in the world today. There has been some relaxation in China, but still there is difficulty. How would you like it if you could not give your child any religious instruction until he or she were 18 years of age? That this would be considered by the government as interfering with the education of the child? How would you like it if you could not be certified to go to college or university because your father, mother, or your family were Christian? How would you like it if you could not be employed because you were a counter-revolutionary? You were one of those who would, who would not be considered politically reliable. Well, there are Christians like that, and they suffer terribly because of it. They may have been poor for other reasons, Maybe they took very seriously the commandments that James, in his letter, put out that when a brother comes to you hungry and cold and naked, you're not to say to him, God bless you, and send him away, but you're to share your good. Maybe these Christians shared their good with other people, and for that reason, they were poor. Then there was a second form of persecution. They were slandered. They were slandered for the cause of Christ. And this happens very often in the church. And a person who slanders comes very close to a terrible sin against, you know, that's part of the sin against the Holy Spirit. That shows you something of the deadliness of slander. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. They slandered these early Christians, the wagging tongues, the false rumors. They said of these early Christians that when they met to eat the Lord's Supper, that they were cannibals, eating flesh and drinking blood. That when they baptized infants, that they were doing something terrible. They had malicious gossipers, and they were accusers. That's what Satan, one of the words for Satan is an accuser of the brethren. And Christians were deeply wounded by this abuse. It's interesting that when Christ was reviled on the cross, he reviled not again. They plucked at his beard, they spat in his face, 
They accused him of all kinds of things. They mocked him and said, if you're the son of God, then why don't you come down from the cross? And those who follow in his train are not to be surprised when they run into the same thing. And so Peter, in one of his letters in 416, one of the three times that the word Christian is used, says, if any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian because he belongs to Christ. Prison. They are told here that they are going to be placed in prison. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days and you will have tribulation. Now what about prison? Did you ever stop to think about the jails that Paul was in? The prison in Caesarea, the prison in Jerusalem, the prison in Philippi. Some of the places where he suffered and was in prison. And the one who writes this letter is on a prison island called Patmos, where political prisoners were placed. You will suffer prison. The story can now be told of Wang Mingdao. And one of our own students here knows him personally. And Mrs. Graham, when she went to China last, Mrs. Billy Graham last uh, May, I believe it was, went to see him personally. In 1955, when the communists unleashed a terrible persecution against the Christians, they demanded that all Christian groups come under a minister of religion. And if those groups who met in little churches or in house churches refused to do so, if they published any tracts and passed them out, those tracts were deemed as counter-revolutionary and unpatriotic, even though they had nothing except scripture verses on them and the plan of salvation. Wang Mingdao was arrested in 1955. He was placed in prison for 10 months. And during that time, he was tortured. And finally, he told his tormentors the names of some of the people who worshipped in the house churches. And he signed the confession that he was a counter-revolutionary, member of a secret house church. And they let him out of prison. Up and down the streets of Shanghai, he walked out of his head, muttering, I am Judas, I have betrayed Christ. I am Judas, I have betrayed Christ. Finally, when his senses began to return to him, he went back to the prison officials, recanted the confession that he had made, and they placed him in prison for 22 more years. Last January, a year ago, at the age of 80, they released him from prison. This is how some people suffer for Jesus Christ. There is an excellent article in the Presbyterian Journal magazine this past week. It's the one that has the picture of the wall of China on the front of it. And it gives a sort of a compendium of things that have gone on recently in China. No one knows quite how to evaluate what's taking place there. 
but it's well worth your perusing. It, it has some interesting things to tell. And one of the things that I saw and was attracted to was a young student who belonged to a house church who was arrested. They accused him of passing out counter-revolutionary literature, which were actually gospel tracts. They took him to jail, and then when he was visited by members of his house church, they arrested them too. And then more visitors from the house churches came until finally the jail was so full that they had to let them all out of jail. Now, the writer of this article, who is an old China hen, and who was out there last year, brings his article to a close by teaching us some lessons that we need to learn. From the church in China, we believers in the West can learn some important lessons. Number one, we can see the essential character of the church. Take away the building, take away the institution, take away the organization, take away the committee, take away all the things we associate with church, and we still have a group of brothers and sisters who experience a new life and a fellowship in the household of faith, where they had to read their scriptures by writing them out in longhand and passing them from one another. Many young people who have come to know Christ through parents or friends have never been to a church service. They never possessed a copy of the Bible. But they have a living faith, and they share that gospel with their friends. Number two, we are impressed by the importance of the family. The church in China today is rooted in the home. During the worst days of the persecution of the Cultural Revolution, only small family groups could meet, and a Christian could only witness to someone who could be trusted not to betray his or her friend. Three, we notice that the work of building up the church has to be done by lay people, not professional clergy. Many of the pastors were put in prison. The work had to continue as brothers and sisters took the responsibility of shepherding the flock and caring for one another. Fourth, we find that as in the New Testament church, Christians regarded suffering for Christ's sake to be normal. The gospel of prosperity has no place in China today. People do not come to the church expecting security and an easy way of life. When they have decided to follow Jesus, they take up their cross to follow the crucified one. The early Christians suffered in these ways. They suffered the plunder of their goods, slander, prison, and death. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life that fadeth not away. Now let me summarize, if I can summarize it. This is one of my old books that I've had all the way back from seminary. It's got the Didache, 
the epistle of Barnabas, Polycarp, Papias, ancient Christian writers. And one of the most interesting things in this is the account of the martyrdom of Polycarp of Smyrna, this church that we've just been reading about. Now remember this, that these early Christians did not seek martyrdom. And this description of what happened to Polycarp teaches that. And it's interesting, as I think I pointed out last week, that the Greeks usually committed suicide rather than to knuckle under to the Romans. But the Christians would not commit suicide. They would rather be torn by beasts or burned at the stake than to commit suicide. They considered life to be the gift from God and their responsibility was to suffer if it demanded suffering. They remembered Jesus in Gethsemane. They looked upon death as an enemy, but an enemy that he had conquered, but they did not take their own life. And so that made them pray for the Romans. The most wonderful Polycarp, on the other hand, was not at all disturbed when the news reached him. In fact, he was old and his impulse was to wait in the city. But the majority were in favor of his withdrawal, and so he withdrew to a farm not far from the city. And there he stayed with a few friends. Day and night he did nothing but pray for all and for the churches throughout the world, as was his custom. While the search for him continued, he had no sooner removed to another farm than his pursuers came upon him. Since they did not find him, they arrested two young slaves, one of whom confessed under torture. It was really impossible for him to escape detection, he was so well known. Those who were ready to betray him were of his own household, and besides, the chief of police even bore the name Herod. He was in a hurry to bring him into the arena. And in this way, he was to fulfill his own destiny by entering into partnership with Christ. Taking then the slave who had betrayed them with them, the mounted policemen set out on Friday at about supper time, armed in their usual way as though they were in hot pursuit of some vicious robber. And this old man was overnight. Closing in upon him, in the late day, they found him hidden in a small room under the roof. Even there, he might have escaped, but he decided against it, saying, God's will be done. And so when he heard of their arrival, he came down and talked with his captors. The onlookers wondered at his extreme old age. Then late as it was, he ordered food and drink be brought to the soldiers and for them to eat and drink as much as they wished, and that he be allowed a time of undisturbed prayer. When he had at last ended his prayer, in which he remembered all that he had ever met at any time, both small and great, known and unknown, and the whole church, the moment of departure arrived. It was a great Sabbath. He was met by the chief of police, they had him transferred to a carriage and seated at his side. The chief of police tried to win him over. Really, they said, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and offering incense, and thus being saved? At first, he did not answer. 
And then he said, I'm not going to do what you counsel. So they failed to win him over. They threatened him, and finally they pushed him out of the carriage. He was bruised, but got up and walked dignified into the arena. The uproar of the crowd was so tremendous that no one could be heard. The proconsul said to him, respect your age, swear by the fortune of Caesar. When the proconsul insisted and said, take the oath and I will let you free, revile Christ. Polycarp said, for eighty and six years I have been serving him. He has done me no wrong, how then can I dare blaspheme my king and my God? But again, the proconsul said, swear by the genius of Caesar. And again, Polycarp answered, you flatter yourself that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar as you suggest. And if you pretend not to know me, let me tell you, frankly, I am a Christian. If you wish to learn the teachings of Christ, fix a day and I will explain. The proconsul said, I have wild beasts, and you shall be thrown before them if you do not change your mind. Call them, replied Polycarp. Again, he said, if you are not afraid of the beast, I will have you consumed by fire unless you change your mind. The old man said, the fire which you threaten is one that will burn a little while and after a short time goes out. You evidently do not know the fire of God in judgment that burns forever and will never go out and awaits the wicked. But why do you lay, delay? Go ahead. Do what you want to. They piled the faggots high about him. They started to restrain him. And he said, leave me just as I am. He who enables me to endure the fire will also enable me to remain unbudging without your security. He bowed his head and prayed, O Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, God of angels in all creation, God of all the race, of saints who live under your eyes, I thank you because you have seen fit to bestow upon me this day and this hour the honor that I may drink at this cup, the cup of thine anointing. May I be accepted among them in thy sight today as a rich and pleasing sacrifice. I thank thee, I glorify thee, through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, together with him and the Holy Spirit, be all glory, world without end. Amen. This is the church in Smyrna. This is the church in Montreal. How much do we witness for Christ to the people in the dormitory, to the people in the school? to the people where we work? Is it a mechanical witness without love like that church in Ephesus? 
That lampstand went away, but there's still a church in Smyrna today. Or how do we stand before Jesus? Let us bow in prayer. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, life here is so brief and will pass away so swiftly. And the only things that will really count for eternity is what we have done with our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. We know that not even a cup of cold water given in his name will go unnoticed, and no witness given for him will go unnoticed either. We seem so unworthy to be welcomed into the same heaven where these saints down through the ages, where these martyrs in Colombia and in China and in other places have been so faithful. Oh God, teach us that true riches come by laying up our treasures in heaven and not upon earth and help us to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.